Welcome once again to Cinemaholics, the major motion podcast, where we talk about the biggest and the best films coming to theaters and streaming online. You okay, Will? I'm fine. Why do you ask? I don't know. You seem like uh, you're upset about something. I'm not upset about anything. I'm happy to be here. Am I just reading into that? I think so. Okay. Well, I apologize. Uh, from the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm John Agroni, film editor for the Young Folks. Will, are you okay? I'm perfectly fine. Hmm. I guess I guess I'm having a bit of an out of body experience today. I don't I don't know. I guess uh, so. Yeah. It's just I, when I'm looking at you, it's like you're rotoscoped, and it's okay. like you're kind of like like you're we're animated. Doing, we're doing an Apollo 10 half thing. I thought we were doing an everything everywhere at once thing. Oh, like a multiverse thing. Yeah. Oh, like I don't recognize you. Just like you're like Will, but you're a little different. You're like the version yeah. of Will who is does not like doing the podcast. I don't know what you're talking about, but. Uh, we could also make this a Morbius thing, saying you're really you didn't watch Morbius. You refused. Well, it's not that I refuse. I you stood up for asked yourself to review everything everywhere once it's instead because I felt okay. that was a more interesting film to cover. Okay, uh, and I had no interest in seeing Morbius, but I said I would see Morbius if you felt inclined. I mean, to I saw it. it. Yeah, and I I'd like to talk about it someday because it's well. Can I can I tell you something about Morbius, the new you want. in association with Marvel Sony movie that's sort of supposed to be connected in a weird way to the Spider-Man movies, but also Venom? Sure. I don't think it's as bad as people are saying. It just seems pretty mediocre. Yeah, yeah, but like people are just sort of saying like it's not watchable and it's like one of the worst movies. No, it's it's not. It, it's not that bad. It it's just it's okay. It's it's just pretty whatever. And uh, I, yeah. here here's here's my other thing though. Where you're missing out on an opportunity, I think for the first time on the show, we would have been able to go through Jared Leto's filmography. Why would we want to do that? Because we never do it, because he's always like the supporting actor, right? With House of Gucci, with the little things, with, I mean, I know we weren't doing the show back then, but with Dallas Buyers Club, like Mm -hmm. we're never kind of like digging into the whole Jared Leto of it all. Suicide Squad, we didn't. It was like the last thing we talked about was Jared Leto's Joker. This would have been an opportunity mm-hmm. to be like, hey, let's let's do a little bit of like a, you know, a colonoscopy on the Jared Leto experience. And we're missing out on I that. I guess. I don't know. I, I could do without more Jared Leto in my life personally. I mean, I, I agree, think. but I'm still kind of fascinated by his career and his general approach to acting. I mean, he's a method actor who's not it, good at acting. I mean, is that what it is? I, I find it fascinating in some respects. Like, I think it was really fascinating in House of Gucci uh, mm-hmm. because I feel like that was a movie where he is not giving a good performance, but he's giving the performance that the movie wants. And he's mm-hmm. also kind of perfectly cast, but he's also horribly cast at the same time. And it's this weird push and pull where he's like at once being the best and worst thing about that movie. And so, like, I think that is fascinating. But Morbius, he looks like he's just miscast. He doesn't care in the movie. He's just like, it's his most well, it understated like performance. He... It's one of his better performances. Like, I, it's funny. I think. I don't. I don't think you would agree though. I feel like you would have the opposite opinion if you saw it. But maybe that's, I don't that's know. Why I mean, we are, we are. I feel like. Well, I mean, you say he doesn't care, but I feel like he maybe cares too much. Like he, as an actor, like, yeah, I'm saying he doesn't care in this movie. More. Oh, you mean like you're saying like he doesn't care? He's going to do whatever he wants, sort of thing. Yeah, like I'm not doesn't... talking about generally as an actor. No, 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 no. I would not okay. go that far. But, um, yeah. yeah. 
we are we are going to talk about everything everywhere all at once which a lot of people are saying like this is the one of the best movies of the year so far uh it's a bit of a landmark film in certain ways we're gonna get into it but I, you know real quick well i want to go through here are all the movies that we could have talked about uh, we're not going to get to them but i just want to like cover the scope of what movies like releases were like mm. this past week because it was kind yeah. of insane we well, had nitrum nitrum um i wanted to which, see that. say again i wanted to see that film i wanted to see it too it's uh, the new justin kurtzell film um that came out uh also moonshot which i don't think is going to be any good but like that that's our one with cole sprouse and lana condor on hbo max i heard it's all right uh there was something called night's end which i don't know if you if you heard about that one it's just like a, like a little horror movie or nights night night That's with it. an n no okay no k okay yeah there was better nate than ever on disney plus uh which I thought is that based came of out course before. um i mean did i thought it came out this past week i have no idea this movie doesn't exist so it, it could never come out that's the paradox well i mean yeah it's a musical it's about nate ashton Ashton's brother that's sure. true put him on blast if he's yeah. listening hey nate <laughs> um there was something called see you then which uh I, you know i know nothing about but i just saw that it was another movie that came out this week i have nothing to say there say was so. uh you won't be alone the yeah, Sundance. I saw that one. you saw that one too yeah we both saw it we're not gonna talk about it i i, didn't I think it was very movie. good i thought it was all right very experimental film easy to appreciate on some level uh, existential i think you mean existential sure yeah we can say that and then the bubble judd apatow's I, new film i i have also seen that i saw um, the first like 30 minutes and i i turned yeah, it off because i i was you know out. self-care like, i was like you know what i don't want to keep watching this sure and it's funny because there were two netflix like, movies out this year this month this week by two well, well-known filmmakers and yeah this was like the big one because it has a big cast. And then the other one that Paul and a half we are actually talking about because it's worth talking about, I think. Yeah. I mean, there were two movies that they released one that they uh, cared about <laughs> and one that they basically dumped their unceremoniously onto their yeah. service. Well, also there, uh, were, there was like one or two other Netflix or like films that came out, but like, you know, they do that every week. Weekend? It feels like they have a, that has so much stuff, I guess. I mean, the big thing before was the new season of Bridgerton, I think. Sure. Well, I'm getting the shows and all that. But with the bubble, I mean, mm-hmm. this was supposed to be like, you know, like big ensemble. Cat. Karen Gill yeah. and Leslie Mann, of course, Which, the wife of yeah. Judd Apatow, uh, Keegan-Michael Key, and then uh, Pedro Pascal. And mm-hmm. it's like a COVID movie, I guess. They're trying to yes. like film a blockbuster while being in a COVID bubble. Like everybody yeah, wants to see that. It's poking fun at the making of the most recent and still upcoming Jurassic World movie. Yeah, which, you know, I, I like the concept. I'll go that far. Yeah. I mean, I was talking about Corey because I think Corey was either watching it now because that movie's like whatever, three hours. It feels like three hours. Yeah. Uh, it's actually two hours. But um, he was watching it and I was saying that you tapped out because you're a wimp you didn't yeah. want to finish the movie 100 uh and he said that he'd be willing to join us for or join me i mean for a bonus discussion of that film mama so. mia here we go again um but the one i wanted to discuss yeah i'm about up, to say it the one yeah. movie that i missed that i actually do have an interest in seeing is rrr triple r yeah which came out not this weekend but last weekend but it seems like the word of mouth is spreading that's certainly how i found out about the film sure 
Um, Big it is, Bollywood release. Yeah, a, a Hindi film that uh, is really seeming to make an impression in the U.S. Uh, in yeah. a major way, more so than most uh, Hindi or Bollywood films do. It's playing in uh, theaters all over this area. And yeah, I, I know people who watch this film critics who are like, I cried while watching this. And I'm like, wow, OK. I wasn't that emotional, but it was just uh, it's funny to see this and everything everywhere all at once at the same on the same week. Because it's like, you know, we see so many movies now, uh, certainly from a blockbuster standpoint, where it's just like seems like, you know, it's algorithm dictating what's happening. It doesn't seem like filmmakers mm. are really pushing the envelope here. It seems like, you know, if, and we see two films from prominent filmmakers just being dumped on the streaming services with little to no fanfare. And you're like, what's really going on? Is cinema dead? And you watch a movie like that and you watch a movie like everything everywhere at once. And you're just like, you know, cinema, it's alive, man. Yeah, it's not dead. You it's just taking gotta, a nap. Well, you just got to find it. I mean, you're not you may not see it. Yeah, a film like Morbius, though I haven't seen it, so I can't judge it too harshly. Yeah, for all but, you know, you'd be like, oh, that's even better than RRR and everything everywhere all at once combined. But I genuinely want you to watch RRR if you can make the time and feel comfortable going to a theater to see it, because it is absolutely worth the theatrical experience. It's it's three three hours, will It's a Bollywood film. Three it is three hours. And I will I've say... I've never seen yeah. a Bollywood film in theaters. No, Nor I do not I. count Aladdin. People who think Aladdin is Bollywood uh, need to get their eyes um, checked. I mean, I was going to say the closest I've come to seeing a Bollywood film or a Bollywood film in theaters was probably Slumdog Millionaire, which I don't qualify. I don't, as I don't fl- count that uh, as Bollywood. But it has no Bollywood influence. So that's about yeah, as close as I've come mm. to. I'm not qualifying as a Bollywood film. I'm saying that's the closest I've come to a Bollywood film uh, in my lifetime. In, in my theatrical going experiences in this one knowing life I have. So, Fair enough, uh, I yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, def- absolutely. If you and our listeners can see RRR hundred percent worth the, the time money to see it. And like we said before, so many movies out, so many choices. April's going to be a big old month, but it's kind of amazing that we are going to talk about this movie, everything everywhere all at once, which is such a big movie. And it's, it's hitting. It's hitting hard. Um, I've never. I haven't seen the trailer for this movie, Blashing. Everything, everywhere, all at once. And I've heard that the trailer is terrific. Like, truly Very good trailer. A standout mm-hmm. trailer gets you pumped for the movie. And yeah. I, I have the trailer right here. And I'm. I, I think I want to watch it for the first time with you right now, Blashing. Sure. Are you down? Okay. If you want, I think, yeah. I think that could be fun. So I mean, I, I've I, seen the trailer. I know, but, but uh, you get to see me seeing the trailer, right? Okay, I, I see. And the listeners I'm, get to. I am, Getting a yeah. trailer reaction against my will right now. Yeah. Well, not against your will. You could, you could, hey, look, you're about it anytime. But I'm uh, joking. I'm joking. Here, it, here is everything, every, everywhere, all at once, the, the, the trailer. Here we go. This is Wang. This is Wang. Mrs. Wang, are you with us? I am paying attention. Now, you may only see a pile of receipts. But I see a story. I can see where this story is going. It does not look good. What's happening? 
your husband. I'm another version of him from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. Uh, no time to help you. Across the multiverse, I've seen thousands of Evelyns. You can access all their memories, their emotions, even their skills. There's a great evil spreading throughout the many verses. And you may be your only chance of stopping it. Don't make me fight you. I am really good. I don't believe you. I'm gonna say this, okay? Well, and maybe maybe you're gonna find this to be hyperbolic. I think this is one of the most important films to have come out in years. It's important that this movie came out. All right. And what I mean by that is that you kind of you kind of touched on it earlier. We needed this. We needed a budget movie like a movie that's budget is like looks bigger than it is this is a 25 million dollar movie oh yeah i mean that's easily one of the most impressive things about this movie is that yeah i mean i think they shot it also in like i think 35 days or something like like i don't know the budget and the production for this film are insane like i heard not confirmed but i had heard that apparently did like 70 shots a day or at least like one of the days they had like 70 shots they had and it was just a matter of them being so pragmatic as directors are just like we know what we want we know how we're going to get in the edit we're just going to like get one or two takes moving on to the next yes. scene next set and it's which, a24 and they trusted yeah. them right they, yeah. they weren't like oh hey you need another 50 million dollars to go back and change like these 40 minutes and none of that and I mean, on top of all that, this was made during the pandemic. Like this was yes. shot in 2011, which is even more mind boggling. To I can't believe it. I mean, it, yeah, I do kind of believe it because the cast is pretty contained. Right? Oh, for sure. But I mean, like just I mean, like the number of sets, the number of different multiverses, the number of costumes, the number in a, of, in a world like, where things are fair. This would win the Oscar for production design by a mile. Oh, yeah. And I mean, like. I'm not a big fan of like flashy editing in general, but this deserves an editing nomination. hundred percent. Yeah. Maybe a win. I mean, the year is young, yeah. right? I don't and think this will get Oscar consideration, but same. I hope it does. I hope they at least consider it. If they had, re- which is confusing to me because they should not have released this in March. They should have released this in like July or August, but they keep doing this. I, they released well X already earlier this month. Yeah. It's like, they're just dumping everything in one month. Yeah. I mean, as far as, releasing it this month i think it's such a kooky zany film that i can understand that like they want to release it early before the summer movie season so they don't they don't want it to get overshadowed but they tend to release their movies that like have a clear audience that they know people will show up for but maybe aren't like a confident sell around this time because like they know like even though this, I think, deserves to be considered for award consideration, I, I don't think it's a safe bet. Uh, it's not something that the Academy is going to guarantee love. Critics will. Uh, what was that? It's, critics will, yes. Oh, I, critics, I think it's going yeah. to go through that circuit, but, just destroying, yeah. very likely. But Depending I think on what else smart. comes out this year. Yeah, I think they were smart, though. I mean, I've been 
vocally very critical about a lot of things that A24 does. I do like them as a company. I, I like the movies they produce. I'm glad they're around. I'm glad they're supporting indie film the way they are. I think they have botched number of releases in the past, including the they last have. few months. But I think with this one, they were smart. I think they knew that this was like the most South by Southwest movie to ever exist. They premiered at South by Southwest, got the incredible yep. word of mouth and reviews from that film, and then released it shortly thereafter in a kind of gradual word of mouth way where they released it in some small select cities, got the word buzz growing, and now it's going to be going wide by the time we're talking about it in this episode. And I mean, people are, you know, people that may otherwise have ignored this film or forgotten about are actually going to probably come up and see it, I hope. Yeah. And I think that's was a smart play. I think that was a smart part. play too. And it, it carries on the A24 tradition where, you know, yes, I agree with you. I'll criticize A24 any day, but at the same time, A24 tends to make some of my favorite films every year, right? So like my favorite film or my second favorite film of uh, 2020, that was Minari, right? Uh, my favorite film of 2019 was The Last Black Man in San Francisco. My favorite film of 2018 was Eighth Grade. So three years in a row, two years in a row, they were my favorite films were A24. And then my second favorite film in 2020 was that it, last year, 2021, Red Rocket. That was A24, right? So I, I'm clearly like, I, when it comes to A24, I tend to really love those, that level of films, I guess. But it's funny because, I mean, do you know their highest grossing films ever? Can you guess? Uh, Spring Breakers is certainly up there. No. Well, it was at one point, right? Maybe at one point, but uh, it's not in the top five. Okay. Well, I know it's not under the Silver Lake. <laughs> nope. I'm curious uh, if see. you're going to get this and get any in the top five. Um, One more guess. Let's see. Well, that was an actual guess. Uh, that one was a joke answer. Fine, fine. You can get two guesses. Two more guesses. Spring Breakers was an actual guess. Um, Let's see. I'm trying to think. Like, what is like... You got this. What? What's a blockbuster of theirs that they've actually done, and like a or like a like a major release? I feel like Spring Breakers was one that. If it was um, on me, I would have only guessed one of these. I'll, I'll give you that. Maybe oh, Florida two. Project. Nope. Oh, huh. last guess. I believe in you. Sort of. Can I look at a list of A twenty four films? Nope. Okay. You might see uh, the budget accidentally. We got to be more careful. The budget or the box office? That box office. That's what I meant. Um, was eighth grade? No. Okay. Number five, Midsummer. It made forty-seven million dollars. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Number four, Uncut Gems, made fifty million dollars. Oh yeah, I forgot that was a twenty-four. Yeah, yeah. Moonlight, number three. Oh, of course, yeah. Sixty-five million dollars. This one I wouldn't have guessed. I would have guessed Moonlight. I would have guessed Uncut Gems. I would not have guessed Lady Bird. That made well, that seventy-nine that million dollars. Yeah, I didn't I, know it I made that much. That was, yeah. Now you mentioned that. That was. I always forget that these films are a twenty-four films. I think they're like focus or ah, something so. no no and then the number one and th this is the other one i would have guessed although I, I don't know if i would have guessed it was the number one but it does make sense in retrospect hereditary mm. okay 81 million so I, yeah 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 okay. wild those not none of those are like outliners or like i can't believe that was a, a huge hit but i i can get what you're saying where it's like sure sure uh, let's talk about the daniels the yeah sure we, we should talk about those guys yeah our buddies turned down um, for what Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Uh, so these guys are the uh, mad geniuses behind a movie called Swiss Army Man, which it's you and I my... bonded over that year, I want to say. We, we both enjoyed yeah. that one quite a bit. I was um, on your previous podcast 
and I think I defended that as a film either of the year or the summer. I forget which. Uh, and I made my case for it. Uh, and that remained uh-huh. my favorite film of 2016. Not You didn't defend it to me. I was on your side, right? Cause I, for, I had to defend it to somebody. I loved that film. I, I like still listen to the soundtrack. I, I do not remember ever trashing it whatsoever. No, and you I, weren't trashing it. It was an, it was a case for like either the film of the year or the summer. And then we had to like each make a case. It was like, oh, you, yeah, maybe me. like the best, our best and our favorite, whatever. I think Sing Street was the one for yeah, me that year. I think you were making the case for Sing Street. I was sure. making a case for Swiss Army Man. I forget what the other two were. Um, Swiss Army Man was like, I, I remember really, though, like going to bat for that one in a similar oh, way yeah. because of how it it was such a blessed movie in terms of what it said about, you know, the uncomfortability of being a human being and, you know, all of the weird foibles of society. And it, it was just a beautiful movie. Absolutely. And, and this is definitely film, in that yeah. same spirit. Yeah. And I still see people being weirdly sort of antagonistic towards that film, but I hope the success and the critical acclaim of everything everywhere at once helps, helps people to reconsider, reevaluate or actually see that film because yeah. I, Really do think like, I, I mean, people got hung up on the whole like farting corpse thing, but beyond the goofiness of the core premise, it is really a beautiful story about friendship and self-identity and, uh, you know, feeling comfortable in your own self, but also learning uh, your own social failures and own social ineptitude. And also for a lot of men realizing that, like the fantasy that they create in their head is not true to reality when it comes to social interactions and yeah, it's a really beautiful, complex, uh, film. And I think that it deserves a lot more credit than I think it was, it was, it had received at the time of its release. Absolutely. Yeah. We totally agree there. Now their first film feature film that they ever did, cause they did a short film in 2014, but their first feature film was Swiss army man, which they directed yeah. and wrote. They did another short film, uh, that same year called possibility. Huh? Okay. I, I thought you were talking about interesting ball. Interesting Ball was the 2014 one. Okay, I think so, yeah. The short one, yeah. Possibility was 2016. Um, and then they went away for a while. That was six years ago. Uh, Daniel Scheinert made The Death of Dick Long, which he directed but did not write, uh, which I thought was an okay movie, not uh, one that I thought I like was it. a bit weird mm-hmm. uh, in ways I didn't appreciate as much. Um, like it's grown yeah. on me. It, it didn't hit me in the same way that um, Swiss Iron Man did or this film did, but I really appreciate the film's commitment to its concept and how willing it is to be pretty dark and morose while also being funny and kind of even touching in, in a weird way. So it, it's it's a pretty good film, but I, I feel like it didn't hit the same stride as the films that these two have made together. Absolutely. They've, they've done a lot of stuff together on the TV side. Uh, they've done stuff for shows like Children's Hospital. Uh, Dan Kwan yeah. uh, did an episode of Legion. Um, they also did uh, an episode of Aquafina's Nora from Queens. I think they did a couple of that, right? Of a couple of what? From Nora from Queens. Uh, they might have, uh, very possibly. And I think Aquafina was actually going to be in this movie, Everything Everywhere, right. all once at one point, but then was recast, uh, which I think was for the best. Oh, yeah, you're right, actually. Yeah, I yeah. do remember that. They also have done a lot of music videos, a lot of great music videos. Um, a lot of them for Manchester Orchestra, which makes a lot of sense, right? Because Manchester mm-hmm. Orchestra does the soundtrack for Swiss Army Man. But then they also have done some like iconic ones. They did Simple Song for The Shins in 2012. They did Turn Down for What, which is like that. people really know that one. That's a terrific mm-hmm. music video. That's um, their calling card one, yeah. Say again? That was the their calling card, I think. That was like kind of what got them 
more prolific work and probably what led to them doing something like Swiss Army Man. Yeah, and I mean, they've, they've worked with Tenacious D, they worked with Passion Fit, Foster the People. Uh, th- these guys uh, ha- certainly have built a reputation for being surreal filmmakers, um, being, for being unpredictable, but also being heartwarming. And I think that is a nice way to encapsulate everything everywhere all at once, which is such a fascinating movie in the sense that it's coming out a month or two before this big Marvel blockbuster called Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, which is going to like feature prominently the multiverse in superhero films. We're sort of entering that part of superhero cinema where now we're going to start getting into like alternate realities and doing all this stuff. And this movie is amazing because it is sort of preempting, I think, that whole like phase we're about to go into where I'm sure you and I are going to have a bit of a time, you know, talking about the Marvel movies this year. And Mm -hmm. they just kind of come in preemptively with, I think, one of the best multiverse pieces of storytelling ever put to film. Right. Like, well, yeah. And yeah, I mean, in that, uh, I think that's also the other reason why they had to release this in the spring, because if they release this in the summer and even the fall, people would just endlessly compare it to Doctor Strange. And I think and now they just wanted to stand on their own, stand on its own terms. Yeah. yeah. Now they're going to endlessly compare Doctor Strange to everything, everywhere, all at once. But that's the thing. Critics are going to. That's a good strategy. Critics are going to watch Doctor Strange and just be like, yeah, the multiverse been there, seen that done better. I have a feeling because uh, as we said, the, the critics are all over this thing. They love it. Um, but what about us? So I think it's clear that we love it. But uh, anyway, this movie mostly centers around a woman named Evelyn Wang. She owns a laundromat that's kind of struggling with her husband, Waymond. Evelyn is played by Michelle Yeoh, the legendary Michelle Yeoh. And her husband, Waymond, is played by Kay Hewitt Kwan. Uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that close to accurately. Now, it, it, one thing about Michelle Yeoh, of course, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, among many, many, many incredible films. Um, I think the first time I ever saw her in a movie was Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, she was one of the main characters in that James Bond movie, which uh, was a bit of an awakening for me, I want to say, uh, in terms of like the James Bond movies, because that was the first one I saw in theaters. And uh, she she has been in a lot of incredible martial arts films like throughout the 90s. And uh, I want to say, what was her last movie that came out? Uh, I know she was in Shang-Chi, but I'm thinking more of like a bigger movie. Like I know she, I guess she was in Last Christmas and uh, Crazy sure. Rich Asians, but... Yeah, I was going to say, that's probably be your most famous one of late, outside yeah. of Shang-Chi. Oh, Gunpowder Milkshake. That was the other one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was in that. Uh, she's going to be in the Avatar sequels, uh, so we'll see her pretty... Sure. We'll see her again pretty soon. Why not? Yeah. Um... Yeah, Michelle Yeoh, she's a legend, legend of the cinema. And then Kei Hua Kwan, I don't know if you picked up on who this guy was when you oh, maybe when you saw the trailer. I Short round. I watched the entire movie and I was just like, he looks familiar and his oh, really? voice is so familiar. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until right after I saw his name and I was like, that name is familiar. And I had to look it up and I was like, oh my gosh, it's Short Round from Indiana Jones. Yeah. Raiders and, of the Lost uh, Ark. Yes. And also, uh, well, I don't think he's in Raiders. Right? Uh, Temple of Doom, in- excuse me. Yeah, I was going to say, he, he's only in Temple, I think. Um, yeah. But he's also in the Goonies. Um, and he's been... Yeah. Uh, Which I guess technically I saw the Goonies before I saw Temple of Doom, now that I think about it. Yeah, but he's been sort of out of the game for a little bit. I think Long he's time. done some like short films. Uh, and like I, I think he did another indie last year. Um, but Finding Ohana, yeah, was mm-hmm. his last movie. 
But I think he's been like kind of semi-retired for like a decade or two before this movie. Right. Yeah. I mean, he he was uh, not acting for about 20 years and, uh, you know, he was certainly more active in the 80s and 90s. And he's back now. And I think wonderfully so, uh, because he just uh, what a well cast film, especially I mentioned this earlier. I think uh, Stephanie Sue, who comes in as Joy, I'm so mm. glad they got her. Um, oh, and yeah. it's not Aquafina because I just think that she's brilliant in this. And I mean, had, had you seen her in anything beforehand? Because I, I couldn't place any of her roles. I, looked, I, I had to look up. And I didn't I, I didn't really see anything. She does show up in Shang-Chi, apparently, but I don't remember her in it. I didn't recognize her from anything specific, but I might have seen something that she's been in, in the past and just don't remember. The only thing I d- have seen her in TV and that was about it. Um, okay. and, uh, or like recognize her. She has like kind of a presence in the, I think it was, she was introduced in the third season of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Um, okay. but she's a, a character in that, like one of the love interests, uh, for the Joel character in that show. Um, and she's also in Aquafina is Nora from Queens. Um, a couple episodes of that show. So it all, it's full circle. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, we also have Jamie, Jamie Lee Curtis. Who, yeah. you know, yeah. she left the well, set you, for Halloween and Halloween kills. Yeah. She's like, say, all right, I mean, time to get to work. Yeah. I mean, she seems to be uh, probably the one that's most emboldened by doing this film outside of Lee Hu Kwan in terms of just like allowing herself to kind of play against her image, mm-hmm. do things that she probably hasn't been able to do outside of the Halloween franchise for years. And she takes it all in stride. I mean, I mean, I don't know what it was like making the film or like what like uh her process of getting into it was but like on screen she seems to be having an absolute ball making this movie yeah i i I genuinely when she showed up in the uh the irs building which i had no idea was going to be our main location for an entire movie (laughs) what a movie it's just like i I remember at one point i was just like we're still on this building (laughs) what am i watching um but she shows up and i'm like that looks exactly like Jamie Lee Curtis. Is that really her? Is this like a main character? What, what am I watching right now? Um, she's going to be in, of course, the the last Halloween movie of that trilogy, Halloween Ends, I think it's called. And then her next big feature is going to be coming out next year, a movie called uh, Borderlands based on the video game. That's the one that uh, Eli Roth uh, r- directed, and I think he co-wrote, um, which I, I assume, Will, you have no like foundation for Borderlands, that franchise or anything. But uh, uh- that... That could be a big movie. No, Borderlands, I know a little bit more than most video games. Oh, okay. Uh, Interesting. I haven't played it, but I mean, I'm familiar with the game, the concept in the world. Okay. Um, But uh, you're forgetting one big actor who's in this film. A big actor who's in this film? Yeah. James Hong, who plays the grandfather. Oh, yes. Uh, Gong Gong. And we we have seen James Hong in countless movies. Um, over four or five hundred credits on IMDb, I think it it is a prolific filmography. He, I think, he was like making movies in like the fifties, right? Yes, um, uh, Chinese films, and uh, I think he also. Uh, I'm trying to think of like some recent stuff because I think my introduction to him was probably through TV because sure. he was in a Zorro show. He was in um, Jackie Chan Adventures. He was one of the voices. Yeah. And that he was in a lot of shows we were in growing up, like just yep. he's a prolific person. Oh, um, Teen Titans, yes. which I know you and I have been uh, swapping sure. memes about that show. Yes. Uh, the original. Uh, yeah. I mean, one of the most legendary 
Asian American actors in Hollywood Absolutely. ever to work in the business. And I was so elated because he was the one I didn't know was going to be in the film. I mean, I, yeah, I know he's he in the trailer, up, but I was like, yeah, yeah, it was just like, ah, nice. And then when I found out he would be like a prominent part, like not just like a like brief one or two scene cameo sort of thing. I was so, right. so elated. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, prolific actor. Uh, it's a prolific cast um, all around. So the, the plot of this movie, it's hard to describe like what this movie is. And I think to sum it up, essentially, like we already said, multiverse movie, but um, Evelyn, who's running this like laundromat, uh, they're they're getting audited by the IRS. And then all of a sudden, without warning, um, Evelyn gets a visit from her husband, who's been possessed by an alternate version of her husband from another universe. And so she finds out there are ways to like channel her other selves from other universes. And for mm-hmm. some reason she is like the hope to saving the multiverse from this like interdimensional demon well, that can control sort of like mm-hmm. people across the universes and use their skills at any time. And yeah, so it's a hero's yeah. journey sort of. Well, this movie, I mean, it runs the gamut in terms of inspiration, but I think one of the more inspired things about it is that it's following the broad narrative archetype of the first matrix film Yes. And the idea of like, you're kind of the one like you, uh, you know, a seemingly mild mannered person is actually someone of great power and significance for saving the universe. But it's the opposite where it's not like Neo, where he is like the uh, uh, the greatest person that has to untap his true potential. It's like she is the worst version of herself to exist in the whole universe. And she's so like the, the movie sort of implies, but I don't think you can say it's definitive. Well, yeah, I think that's what the uh, Lee Kwan's character says directly. Right. That's why I'm saying. Yeah. That. But it's, I mean, it's not I don't think that's the point of view of the movie necessarily. I think it's something no, no, that no, gets but brought what I'm up. Saying is yeah. that it's like it's, it's a theory. No, but what I'm saying is that like she's sort of like this. She's at her lowest point. And like she's like the, the one who has never reached her full potential and never become like uh, able to take her trauma or any particular life experience in a way that has been fully utilized or taking a skill that's like proven to be more substantial than any other version of herself. And so like at this low point, like she can have, she can untap all this potential and become like her truest self through this, uh, you know, sort of wild and out MacGuffin type thing, plot device. And, that's, I think, a really inspired flip on the Matrix hero's journey archetype story. It's it's the Matrix by way of Wong Kar Wai. That's how I would describe it. Uh, because sure, yeah. I mean Wong Kar Wai is certainly a major influence, and there there's even a segment of the film without giving too much away that's very reminiscent of Wong yes. Kar Wai and in the mood for love, and even recreating some of those shots along from some shots from um, what's the one. Uh, like with the motorcycle and stuff. It's one of the ones of his I haven't seen. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, yeah, I mean, one car, why, uh, Hodorowski is a major influence on this film. Malik's a major influence. As we mentioned, the Wachowskis are a major influence. Michelle Gondry is a major influence on this film. Yeah. And just to keep the scope too. It's like, it, it's, it's not just ripping from those movies. Like, well, no, yeah, that's but what I'm going to. Yeah. It's like taking yeah. the sentimentality of like something like in the mood for love 
or um, some of, you know, even the more recent, like, you know, Asian American experience films, immigrant family films that you can take from all across the spectrum and infusing Mm -hmm. that with the not blockbuster, but the high concept, you know, blockbuster cinema that you get some, you get from like the Wachowskis that Mm -hmm. you get from anime that you get from all these like pieces from mostly Eastern sort of, uh, you know, filmmaking. I I want to yes. say Eastern because I think like there's not a lot that's like Western about this because it is so mm-hmm. sporadic. I guess you could say with Malick, uh, Terrence Malick, you have a little bit of that, but it it's not like this movie is a mosaic, right? It's it's well, just yeah. it's all over the place, but in a pretty coherent way. Well, that's what I was gonna build up to, which is that it's like I think I said before, like a sort of like a stew of all these different cinematic influences. It's taking all these different things that you know have been sort of borrowed from other filmmakers or stylistically are attuned to other filmmakers also like edgar wright uh particularly like scott pilgrim there's certainly that feel and aesthetic to a lot of this and um jackie chan has been a major influence in this film to a point where i believe jackie chan was the first uh choice for the character of evelyn before it was going to be a woman i think he, they just wanted to make a vehicle for or for jackie chan then they were figuring out what the story should be and it kind of i think in their words to say it kind of opened up in a bigger more meaningful way but yeah it's taking all of these different filmmakers different influences and it's boiling down into like something that's you know can seem on its face very messy and sort of chaotic but it because it's infused with these uh, sensibilities that are very similar and personal to uh the or are very attuned to the influences of um, our main directors here. It feels so much more personal and unique in a way that I feel is like Quentin Tarantino in that, like his movies sort of, I think they've been described sort of like cinematic mixtapes in that, like they take all these different things, but they are undeniably a Quentin Tarantino experience. Like, I, I would agree, like, but only I, I do want to like make it super clear. Cause like, I think, I think, I think you're saying this, but like to make it clear to the listeners, it's like there is like the Daniels are in this. And I know you're saying that. Yeah. It's like there there's a way of their filmmaking in the same way that Tarantino has his signatures, but it does get right. that like reputation of being like so much homage, so much tribute. Sure. But then you when you really appreciate a Tarantino film, you see that like there are certain things about him that are very original. And it's like, you know, that mm-hmm. you know, something's Tarantino when you see it. And that is mm-hmm. happening here with the Daniels. They have just there are certain things that they do with action scenes where like characters will do things and put things up other things that that is, that is very death of Dick long. That's very Swiss Mm. army man. That's very like, let's do weird things with our bodies um, is kind of their shtick and it works here. Yeah. Um, Although I don't know. I don't know if everybody would agree. I'm only equating this to Tarantino sense of like, I feel like only Tarantino in a broad populist or way has really captured that in a, to American audiences in a way where it's like so clearly honing and borrowing from other filmmakers, but making something that is so signature and unique to them that it doesn't feel like it's like pickpocketing from all these filmmakers. It feels like it's being infused, inspired by them, but making something that is so personal and unique and only singular to them in a way that is ultimately greater because of that. Like it, it, and also Brad Bird too. And for reasons I can't get into without spoiling anything is another filmmaker that, uh, gets, uh, uh, amusingly parodied here. But, um, yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's just like, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I I mean, to clarify, it's not like this is a Tarantino film. I'm saying that like only really Tarantino 
I feel like has gotten success in in a similar way that I can really compare us to because otherwise it feels wholly un or it's like fully unique to what we are seeing from basically any other film that's coming out right now. I, I think I think there are two things that are pretty true about this movie, but they seem contradictory. One of them is that this movie is just going to endlessly delight cinephiles to such a profound degree because of how much of a gift it is just to experience this film, just to sit in it and watch it. But it is one of those movies that is so hard to recommend. And I'm still struggling over who is going to watch this movie and have an experience that was as positive as mine. And I think of a lot of the people in my life who like movies, they watch plenty of movies, but they just, this is such a specific wavelength and I'm still parsing out what that means because as much as I enjoyed watching it, I wonder, is that because my personality going into a film is I want new, new, new. I want to see something that represents not just the culture right now or a reaction to culture. Mm-hmm. I want to see something that shapes culture. I want to see something that's like 10 steps ahead of where culture is going. And that's not always fun for people because people watch things and they want familiarity. They want mm-hmm. culture reflected back to them. They want to recognize things. And I'm not going to take that away from people because that's how some people go into movies. That's what they get out of movies that makes them happy. And I guess that that's the litmus test, whatever. But I mean, do you, do you agree with that? Like, I, I know you, we agree on this, right? Or like on that sense of yeah. like, that's what we want out of movies, but it is hard to sort of rationalize that against uh, recommending this, mm-hmm. I think. Well, I think this is my reason for why I think this is an easier recommend than you might be giving it credit is because... Unlike something like Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which is a movie I like fine, but I think that's a movie where it's like trying to be like a cinephile's tragic romance, like the cinephile's fault in our stars or whatever. And that's a movie where it's like name dropping like Herzog and Fassbender and all these different filmmakers. But it feels like you kind of have to be familiar with them to really appreciate it. And it feels like there's sort of, I guess, maybe like a smugness or maybe some sort of like guardedness where it, like you, you can't fully maybe appreciate that film unless you have those references where this film like outside of maybe one particular brad bird film and maybe the matrix i feel like you can watch this film not having seen the filmography of Wong car Wai, not having seen a terrence malley film not having seen a hodorowsky film having not seen anything from edgar wright and still or anything from uh, Michel Gondry or Charlie Kaufman or any of the other filmmakers I had mentioned and still get something out of it because at its core, it is a very personal and personal and singular film about the immigrant experience, about untapping your full potential, about realizing the value of your life, about acknowledging that you can be greater than you even perceive yourself to be. And I think that's communicated in such a unique and visceral way that even outside of its cinematic influences, I think you can just really appreciate how well-crafted and how exuberant this movie is. Well, that's not the concern I'm having. My concern isn't that people are going to watch it and be like, oh, I don't understand like the influences. Like, I I don't think that's what will trip people up. I think what will trip people up potentially, and I hope I'm wrong about this, is that they're going to see it and it's going to be so chaotic. It's going to be so all over the place that they are going to misread that as it's just, too much and it can't keep up with it or that it's Maybe. it's trying to like shock them and not like really like hook on an, on an emotional you know 
story underneath. I mean, and mm. I agree with you though that like the, the whole immigrant experience, like one of the main things of this movie is that Evelyn, you know, can't accept that her daughter Joy is gay, and you know yeah. she's like trying to sort of parse that out between like the you know the choices and the regrets that regrets that she made in life and the things that she did. You know, it's kind of funny because this film shares a lot of DNA with something like Turning Red in terms of like the mother daughter experience and you know traditions and everything, but it's told more from the perspective from the mom than it is from the daughter. And I think that yeah, that all works. Like I think people are going to get that, but I think at the presentation of it, I just see people just being like, when it's long, and I think mm-hmm. that they're they're just going to be like, I I I'm done with this. Like that's my worry Maybe. and concern. The execution. I yeah, I, I get where you're coming from, and I don't think that's an invalid concern because I think the film, even if I think if you love it, it's a deliberately very overwhelming experience. And I can see if people aren't attuned to it or not on its wavelength or don't really appreciate what it's doing, you could easily check out and be like, this is overbearing. This is too cutesy. This is, you know, cloying or whatever. And if that's the case, I can understand that if it's just not your thing. I can't speak for anyone else but me or maybe you as far as whether that's the experience people will have. But I I think... Yeah, I mean, it's it's a film that's deliberately not made for everyone. And I can't, you know, no, I mean, it doesn't have to be. I don't think that's yeah, no, I think it's all the better for it. I mean, I think the fact that it is a very heartfelt and meaningful and specific film is what gives it its strength. I mean, that's, I think, so key to what makes this film unique. But uh, at the same time, yeah, I mean, if people aren't going to be appreciative of that, I mean, you know, that's kind of going back to the same thing I was saying about Swiss Army Man. I just hope they come around to it because I think what the Daniels are doing is like, it feels like they're on another level right now. Like it just feels like they're doing things with film that, you know, it's not like they're like breaking new ground or anything. I don't think, but it just feels like they're doing things where it's like, I even know you could really do this with like, you were allowed to do this like Hmm. with stories and with humor in a way that it's like, I know you can make a, a scene where two characters have hot dog fingers and are professing their love for each other can be, weird and odd but also poignant and powerful it's just like i didn't even know that's something you could do <laughs> yeah there, there are filmmakers like, yeah. who are minimalist the daniels yeah, are maximalist. They're maximalist. Yeah, yes. these are maximalist filmmakers to the max yeah and that's, uh, that's and, one of the things i love about them and that's like going back to what i was trying to say with rrr is that's another maximalist film that is very uh you know very bombastic and unabashedly afraid to be so in a way that just feels like, okay, like this feels like it's cinema to its full potential in a way. Like it feels like they didn't put anything off the table or didn't have any reservations about what they can do. And yeah, I can understand that being a bit much for some viewers or a casual viewer, but I don't know. I mean, I watch a movie like this and I feel like I didn't get everything. And I, there are certainly times where I find myself overwhelmed. It's gotta be rewatched, but we need, we need to see it again. But I think that's inspiring to me. Like, it feels like, okay, like I want to revisit this film because I want to get the most out of it with each viewing. It feels like I haven't fully experienced it yet just because you can't fully experience it with one viewing. And that's inspiring to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, this is just one of those movies. I, I think that like people, people want movies sometimes I think to just be like an escape, which is cool. Um, I think the movies that I want right now, based on like what we're going through as a world, I want movies that like pick me up and throw me away, you know, that just like shake me around and just like are just this like 
I, I think we need more movies like this that are just like yelling at us. And, and because I think we're all feeling this inside, we're all feeling chaotic. We're all feeling like we're not okay. And sometimes we're just kind of watching movies that are so safe and plain and vanilla because that's just what we, we think we want because everything's so chaotic in the movies. Maybe things will be a little bit more simple. They'll be a little bit more understandable and formulaic. And I just, I need movies like this. <laughs> like I need movies like this that like feel like how, how I feel that like operate like my brain. My brain is all over the place and it, I feel like I have to be everywhere. I have to be doing all of these different things. I think a lot of people watching this maybe come from backgrounds or, you know, people who watch this who are, who are maybe LGBTQ and, you know, they're seeing what's happening in here and, and they're just connecting so much with just, you know, all of the, 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 the pain and the chaos and just everything that's like hitting these characters in like every direction, every facet through all the brilliant filmmaking. I, I think like one thing you said too that I, I really want to harp on in terms of like, you know, who who's this this is for, right? I don't even I don't even think this is for film nerds. I think this is for nerds. You know, this is just one of those movies like you don't have to be specifically like a cinephile, a film critic. Like if you are just somebody who feels who's just very nerdy, who, you know, revels and obsessing over something you really love and care about, which is how I would categorize a nerd. You could be nerdy about all kinds of things, then this is one of those movies that I think could really connect. And I think this is one of those movies I imagine, you know, there are people watching this who are like 13, 14 years old, and this is going to be like one of their awakening movies for them. And they're going to go oh, on it's gonna be to be inspired by it for, yeah. A game changer for them. Absolutely. Right. That's, that's one of the main reasons I wanted to start this out with like, this is important. This is one of those important landmark milestone films. We're going to, you know, people are going to mention in interviews for their new movie of like, you know, what it was like when they, when they saw everything everywhere all at once in the middle of a pandemic. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I just don't want to say anything too hyperbolic from the jump. Cause I think that's a concern with a movie like this where it is. You so... think it'll get lost in time. You think we're just going to forget about no. it? No. I don't think it's going to get lost in time. I'm just worried that the response is going to be so bombastic and overwhelming and visceral that I think other people are going to get turned off by it. And I think people are going to be pushed away or feel sure. like, well, it can't be that. And then they see it and they have this more cynical perspective on it. And I feel like that's a concern that I genuinely have for the film. Because right now, I think last I checked, it is like the highest rated film on Letterboxd, which is fair because this is like Letterboxd the movie. But I, ha I haven't seen it. Should I guess it? I'm going to play the game. I mean, I haven't seen the score either. I just I saw on Twitter uh, someone okay, pointed out okay. that like this is now like I think the highest rated Letterboxd film. And that might go down by tomorrow. I don't know. I'm curious maybe what the criteria people, is. Sure. Yeah. Maybe by the time people I think it's just because people who are watching it are really responding to it, and the type of people who uh like it a lot are going to be very effusive and probably give it four and a half, five stars, which is understandable. But I'm just worried that people are going to come in with some baggage that they wouldn't have had otherwise because they're going to see this and like expect yeah, too much from it. That's or they're unavoidable, gonna, like, though. I, guess. I, I don't think I we don't, can. I don't think we could put yeah. some too much stress on ourselves over that. It's like, sure. what are you going to do? You get, it's not like, you know. Yeah, I just don't want legacy to be tarnished anyway because people are too effusive from the jump. But it's kind of unavoidable with a film like this that feels like like I was saying this to I think the publicist or someone asked me. It feels like it unlocks something in my brain where it's like I didn't even know it could really do this with film right now, <laughs> like in a way. Like, you know, what I mean, like it's like and that's maybe that's adding to the hyperbole, but it just feels like like it's just like we can do this in a way that's like 
it's not like it's like I said, it's not breaking new ground, but it just feels like we can approach things in a way that I don't think I've really seen filmmakers do. And that's why I find so uplifting and inspiring about the Daniels that they're doing things that just it's like this why not approach that I feel is very impactful. And sure. I think other directors have tried to do this and have fallen short, but it just feels like, yeah, why can't we make a movie where it has a farting corpse and people cry by the end? Why can't we make a movie where we do like everything that happens in this movie and yet it's still coherent and cohesive. And it's just like that to me is so encouraging, uplifting for the, the state of future or the future of cinema. I mean, in a way that I feel like people are kind of like, Oh, now cinema is dead. Like Marvel is taking over and all this shit. And it's like, okay, like if we can still get movies like this, I think we're going to be okay. But <laughs> at the same time, I don't want to be a part of the crowd. That's like hyping this up too much and prevent the film from being, what it should be, I feel like, because like people are too quick to praise it from the jump. But it's like, like I said, it's kind of hard not to be that kind of person when you're talking about a film like this and it just came out. <laughs> so I, ha- I, don't know I have it. seen people yeah. who have been like, oh, this this for me is even better than Parasite. Uh, yeah, there, there are some people who are just like, oh, my gosh, you know, um, which and I feel like we were pretty I feel like we were pretty responsible with how we talked about how this might not work for everybody. And so I want to applaud ourselves for I don't, I don't think we're being too hyperbolic i think we're being pretty measured but uh, i have noticed though you you have you do seem ever since you saw this movie will it does seem like you've changed um i i, I don't remember you ever having like a googly eye on your forehead i don't know what that means um but i guess it's this movie kind of affected you and that's fine that works sure yeah yeah i mean like i said i just i, I feel very inspired by the daniels right now i feel like I do they're too. I feel like they're doing things right now that make me feel like they're going to be doing a lot of amazing things moving forward. I hope they don't get the live action Ratatouille. Maybe if they feel inspired to do so. Like I said, like I feel like they have like cachet basically do or hopefully do anything they want to do because they've proven like with just two films or three, if you count death, Dick long that like they can just take any far out concept and ring so much depth and potential <laughs> and getting this and silliness from it in a way that I don't know. I just feel like they're, they're very much on the path of doing some incredible work and they already are doing incredible work. So I, I hope this trend continues from them because they're sure. just, yeah. And especially like if they can keep on, like, I think, you know, I, I hope to see them like break through the culture noise, you know, like this movie's instantly quotable. And I, I hope that like, you know, just be a rock, you know, just like it becomes like a thing because it's just so poignant and pretty hilarious. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, do you have any criticisms, though? You know, like anything to criticize about this movie? Because, yeah, I, like, there are parts of this movie where I, I certainly was like, OK, um, you turned it up to 11 again. And I was kind of feeling like I especially toward the end, I was like, I, I'm ready for this to wrap up. Um, I don't know how you felt, though. Like, I don't know if you felt like, OK, I, I want more, more, more. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have kept watching, but I kind of agree that like because it is so zany and so on and so and then and then 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 with everything that it is, like I said, a kind of overwhelming experience, at least only watching it this one time, maybe with future viewings, it will be less overwhelming for me. But watching it now, it did feel like. I, I felt kind of drained by the end of it in a way that I feel like is purposeful and I feel like is uh, what the filmmakers intended. And I think it's for the best. But I also kind of feel like uh, like I, I, I feel like I, I am a little exhausted from it in ways both good and bad. 
All right. Well, uh, any final words before we uh, play the Rotten Tomatoes game? I, th- I think I'm ready to to move on to the next movie here. I think it's, I think this movie is uh, good. Four stars. The only thing I was just going to say, um, I don't know how you saw the film, but I was fortunate enough to see it at my IMAX. I saw it standard screening. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, they had a one night only IMAX showing the film, which is great. Um, and I got to see the A24 logo on the IMAX screen, which is something I never expected to see. Um, and I thought that was certainly the best way to see the film for obvious reasons. So I have to disagree I, because I wanted to see this at the Castro theater in San Francisco. I was supposed to go to that, but I missed it. And the Daniels were there. Um, okay. and I think some of the cast were there too. And that historic theater, I would have absolutely loved to see it there. Uh, especially because I've seen, uh, Daniel Shiner before for the, he, mm-hmm. he was there for uh Dick of long death of Dick long at one point too. And it would have been carrying on that tradition of seeing the Daniels in San Francisco, or at least one of them. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think no matter how you can see the film, I hope people go out and see it and support it. And yeah, I, I, I just want the Daniels to do more great things like this and keep getting budgets that allow them to do the zaniest, goofiest things they can while not overburdening themselves at the same time. But yeah, I mean, whatever they're going to do, they are guaranteed to get viewing from me i think at this point moving forward because they're just really awesome guys making some really really cool movies and even though this movie at times was like i was like is this movie too much for me like i, I almost like there was one or two points where i almost like wanted to turn the film because like this seems like it's almost too much my thing but <laughs> i feel like they never pushed it too far and that's a credit to them and i, I also just think the the world building of this film cannot be overseen as far as how credible it is just in terms of like capturing such personal dynamics while acknowledging the rules of the world without while also expanding that world and proving how endless and expansive it can be without making that experience overwhelming or confusing to uh to the point of like um being hard to follow i think and i think that's something that just amazes me so much about the film especially upon uh reflection so those are just a couple things I just wanted to say before we moved on to the Rotten Tomatoes game. I, I was gonna. I think I even texted you after the movie, and I was like, "Oh yeah, this is a Will movie. <laughs> this is a Will Ashton feature if I ever saw yeah. one." Yeah, um, sure. Uh, yeah. All right, let's play the Rotten Tomatoes game. 143 reviews have been counted the day we record this, and I mean it's been out for a little while now. It, it hit limited release last week, um, so we're kind of catching it on its upswing. Um, I think it's expanding into more theaters as we speak. But yeah, out of the 143 reviews, what do you think the Rotten Tomato score is for this one, Will? 94%. 97%, a little bit higher. A little bit higher. Um, yeah, critics are in love with this. And I think 97 out of 143, that's one of the best ratios I think we've seen in a minute. Um, unless yeah, I'm totally know, missing something. Yeah, I know one of the Daniels like on Twitter was just like, I think it's possible you guys are praising this film too much. I made it. It's like, like almost a way. It's just like, I think he's almost kind of afraid that like people are going to like, I say over, be fearless. He's overload. fearless enough to make the movie. Be fearless about I the, know. <laughs> but he's also <laughs> seeming to be pretty like self deprecating and sure. at the same time, which I think are both great traits to have. Uh, understandable. Understandable. Um, okay. Audience score. We have 250 plus ratings for that. What do you think the audience score is? Uh, 88%. It is not 88%. Will Ashton, it is 95%. Nice. That's All pretty right. good. I mean, it's not a lot, 250 to count, but yeah. 
Uh, audiences, I mean, to your earlier point, uh, seem to be pretty okay with this one. All right, there's no cinema score. I looked it up. I think because it's still technically in limited release, so I don't think they did the ratings for it. Uh, but we can look at Letterboxd since we did reference it earlier. Um, I don't know what your prediction is for Letterboxd, Will. Uh, what do you think? Out of five. Um, oh, let me actually see. We have uh, 19,000 people have logged it on Letterboxd, which is quite a lot for a movie in limited release. But yeah, what do you think the rating is? Uh, 4.8. It is 4.6. A little bit lower than that, but that is really good. Like 4.6, that's the highest I think we have ever tracked while playing it the game. It is the highest on Letterboxd, supposedly. It is currently uh, number one in the Letterboxd Top 250 Narrative Feature Films. Um, so the Top 250 on Letterboxd is based on the average weighted rating of all Letterboxd users. So that's what was being referenced before. I think that's what somebody noticed. Um, this is a list by Dave Vies, and it looks like, uh, yeah, it dethroned Parasite. Parasite was the highest rated before yeah. this, 4.6, uh, but I guess it's uh, more than that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think Come and See is like number three. It is. Like it is number three. And then Harry, Car- Harry Carey, Harry Carey, I can never say it. Uh, the 1962 mm-hmm. film uh, is number four. The Godfather is number five. Uh, which yeah, is actually Godfather, part two is six, right? It's parts. It's part. It, yes. It's, I was going to say part six. It is six. Uh, A Dog's yeah. Will, uh, the movie based on your life, uh, is number seven. And uh, Human Condition, Seven Samurai, and Twelve Angry Men. Great. What a list. Yeah. Imagine doing like a, a marathon of all those movies with that, yeah, like a podcast <laughs> where you just go through the letterboxed yeah top um, two fifty. Are you worried that Letterbox is gonna be like the next IMDb? Worried? Like like eventually it's gonna be like Shawshank Redemption is the number one movie of all time. Well Shawshank by... is number thirteen right now. Oh really? What 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 not what went to uh number one imdb oh, i'm talking about on letterbox 250 no i'm talking imdb baby. i know but i'm just saying it's on the letterbox number 13 it's not like is that different but i feel like imdb right now is like number one movie shawshank redemption number two godfather number three the departed number four oh let's say borat and number I five know. i don't we're know. gonna have to go with Zack Snyder's Justice League. <laughs> Letterbox, I just feel like, is such a different kind of site. And I'm talk- yeah, so that's IMDb. But it's Letterboxd, beloved yeah. by cinephiles. You know, I think IMDb is one of those things, like, you go to it, you don't really spend time on there. You don't socially connect with people on there. This this is more of a social media app. That's why we love it, I think. I mean, in terms of, you know, logging things. Yeah, I mean, and, yeah. I love it for, like, the diary aspect of it, and that I can see basically other people's viewing diaries mm-hmm. um 100%. and i mean uh that's what i find endearing and what's the spotify me, uh, of watching movies if you say so um but yeah i don't know i mean this isn't an, an ad nor a condemnment of letterbox just a casual inquiry if anything yeah we're not being paid to say this we just love letterbox that much all right sure let's talk not? about one more movie before we call it a night let's talk about okay. apollo 10 and a half a space age childhood this is the latest film directed by Richard Linklater. Now, we haven't talked about a Richard Linklater film um, on this show, you and me, since... I mean, we didn't talk about Where'd You Go, Bernadette, right? I was going to say, I saw it. Um, I don't think I we think did an episode you, on it. You didn't see it, right? I saw it, but I think I okay. saw it way later. Like, I, okay. I think I saw it, like... That was a film... During the holiday take, season. Because that film, it uh, takes place in San Francisco, if I'm not mistaken. Uh-huh. But it was 
filmed in Pittsburgh. So I like to think that the world that movie exists is the hometown of Cinemaholics. There is huh. uh, a we shot in that film. We did. We we did. So September eighth, twenty nineteen, episode one hundred and thirty three of the Cinemaholics podcast, which we did. That was our featured review of It Chapter Two, and we talked about where'd you go, Bernadette? About eight minutes in, um, and then you talked about Loose and the Nightingale because you had you had just seen that, but it had been a while. Man, this is back when we did so many movies. We also reviewed American Factory, the new Dave Chappelle set, uh, Dave Chappelle special. And then Brittany runs a marathon and we finish the show with it chapter two. What a wild episode. And if you're wondering like, Hey, I want to know more information um, about all the episodes in Mahogs.com. The episode with it chapter two. I thought we started it with it chapter two. Say again, you're being kind of quiet. Oh, I said, uh, we finished the episode with it chapter two. Yeah. Yeah. We did at the very end. The format was all over the place. Yeah. We even did a lister email at the very beginning of the show. Wow. Time. And we should bring those back. (laughs) Well, we don't get as many emails these days. I always forget about yeah. them too. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, but no. Uh, we did. We did talk about where you go, Bernadette. So this is this is, I think, the third time we're talking about. Uh, oh no, actually, no. Yeah, it is it because we did last flag flying. I was about to say everybody wants some was before you and I started doing Cinemaholics. Was uh, it? Was it 2016? Yes. So okay, I did talk about everybody wants some on now conspiring previous podcast. Ah. Because uh, I think that's a really fun movie. I really liked Everybody sure. Wants Some. I liked Last Flag Flying. Um, oh, I was a big fan of that one. I thought Where'd You Go, Bernadette was cute. Um, Wasn't a fan of that one, though. Huh? Was not a fan of Where'd You Go, Bernadette. Loved Last Flag Flying. Loved Everybody Wants Some. Before that, we had uh, really Linklater's last big movie that actually, like, I think was a big deal was Boyhood. I uh, was nominated for sure. three Academy Awards, uh, Best Picture, Best Director, and I think Best Original Screenplay, right? was the third one. Sure. Um, Did you know that movie was filmed over 12 years? It was. Um, 12 years. Little known fact about it. <laughs> um, I want to say Patricia Arquette won something for yes. it. Wasn't it Academy Award? She won Sporting Award? Actress uh, at the Oscars. I believe Ethan Hawke was nominated for his performance as well. There you go. Um, Boyhood, good movie. I, I think people good, like to yeah. hate on Boyhood. I, get I, it. I think it's a classic sort of I think it's a better film than Coda, but I think it's a classic example of a Coda type film where uh, that's such a small, personal, intimate film that mm. really works on its own merits. It has flaws. I don't think its execution is perfect, given the way it was filmed over the course of 12 years. There's not going to you know, there are going to be highs and lows, I guess. But I think when it works, it really sings. But I think it got thrusted into like this like award season mess where people put too much on it, expected too much from it, and it became sort of like an enemy of the award season because people are acting like it's sort of like this like highbrow like hoity toity indie film that is inaccessible to move or people when it's really just uh, a very sweet, you know, uh pretty incredible work of filmmaking but it's not my personal favorite link i think i think it's yeah i mean it's a link later film and i'm gonna say you know and i think that basically captures it i think that's a a school of rock yeah uh, that basically captures it i didn't i didn't care man when when this stuff was going on and people were just like complaining of boyhood i just liked the movie like i remember sure there was some review who, who cares like yeah 
there is like backlash, same deal with like stuff like La La Land, it happens. Um, in terms of Boyhood, yeah, I just thought it was a, a nice movie. I watched it on an airplane. Like, I, I don't know. I, I, what's the big deal? Calm down. Um, I love Richard Linklater. He's one of my all-time favorite directors. I know we've talked about it. I love most of his movies. I mean, yeah, the guy's made a few movies that are total stinkers. Um, but... Oh, <laughs> you can't just make that claim. And then what, what, what's, your, what's your stinker category? My stinker category, and I'm no way stand by this, Bad News Bears. Yeah, well, that's um, the worst one. Where'd you go, Bernadette? Which we already mentioned. Yeah, that was uh, in the stinker category, unfortunately. And uh, I got cut out of the movie, so maybe that's why I was in the stinker category. I do you. think, I don't, yeah, I don't that's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm not a fan of a, scar- a scanner darkly. Uh, oh, that the, the, that'd be fighting words. There. I know, I, I, like I know, I understand. Darkly. I'm I really love Waking Life, uh, which of course, like, so Waking Life, which Scanner is, Darkly, uh, and now Paul Ten and a Half are his three like animated movies, yeah. right? I'm not forgetting uh, one, right? No, those are the three anime ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and surprisingly, I haven't seen Waking Life. That's one of the few Linklater films I haven't seen. You haven't seen what? Uh, Waking Life. Okay, sorry. It's kind of hard. To hear. You got kind of you gotten kind of quiet. Um, okay, that's not good. I highly recommend Waking Life. I, I think it's a very great, brilliant yeah. film, brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. But I haven't seen all of his movies, or if you haven't seen it all, uh, I haven't seen Suburbia. Uh, I haven't seen his very first movie. The which I mean, I think it's you have to have. It's only on like uh, the slacker Criterion. Uh, it's called uh, okay, it's impossible sure. to learn to plow plow by, by reading, reading books. books or something. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen that one either. I haven't seen suburbia. I haven't seen tape. I haven't seen. Uh, yeah. Mutant I haven't Boys. seen tape either. Um, those are, I think the big ones I haven't seen, but I, think oh, yeah, I haven't, most... I haven't seen me and Orson Welles. That's the other one. Oh, that one's pretty. Yeah. It's all right. It's cute, but I've seen basically everything else. Uh, School of rock. I just rewatched that this past year. One of my comfort sure. movies, the before trilogy, I think is uh, one of the greatest trilogies of all time, his arguably best the best work. of all time. Yeah. I think it's probably his best work. And uh days and confused. I mean, that's a generational anthem, you know, his most saying that one. iconic film. Probably. Iconic. Yeah. I think I would say days confused probably is most iconic school of rock is most famous. The before trilogy is best work. Slacker. I want to revisit, you know, I've only seen it the once and I, I just remember liking it, but I wonder if like, I would like it a lot more um all these years later i like it a lot yeah i like yeah that yeah movie. and now we have apollo 10 and a half now there is going to be a new link later film coming out um <laughs> someday called merrily we roll along we've talked oh, we that it on one's the show. like <laughs> 20 years in the future or whatever yeah that one's you're gonna have to get your fandango tickets for that <laughs> uh later which i don't even know because like link later is in his 60s at this point uh, i'm just kind of curious how that's going to come about but anyway uh, one thing, if 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 you've watched a lot of Linklater films, you know the guy's from Texas. Uh, he grew up in Houston. A lot of his movies take place in Texas, center around Texas. Uh, everybody wants some dazed and confused. Uh, uh, boyhood, I guess. Well, boyhood was in Texas, right? I think I have that right. Um, yeah. The guy. It's the guy, a safe bet to assume that his movie, whatever movie you're thinking of, it's a safe bet to assume it takes place in Texas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Last Night Flying and Where Do You Go, Bernadette certainly weren't. Um, so it's been a while since we, you know, we came around. I think Bernadette was like Seattle or something. Last Fact Flying was like a road trip along the East I Coast. I just did a whole bit about this. Yeah, it's it takes place in Seattle. But uh, or is it Seattle or is it San Francisco? I thought it was San Francisco. That was Seattle. Seattle? Pretty sure. Oh, okay. Well, okay, then in that case, uh, that movie is like the marrying of Maverick Hines world. And my world, because there's a scene where you see um, 
Bernadette looking over a pier, which is the city line for Pittsburgh, but they add some San- or Seattle uh, landmarks. And it's like this kind of unholy combination of Pittsburgh and Seattle. Unholy. And it's like, <laughs> and it's like that's, in my view, that's where Cinemaholics takes place. That's where we record. That's where our office is. It's in that little <laughs> Seattle, Just that Pittsburgh area. world. Yeah. I, yeah. It also caused the rift of Cinemaholics. The reason Maverick had to step away from the show. Um, okay. But Apollo 10 and a half is an animated movie. And it takes place in the 1960s, 19, late 1960s, sort of. It's kind of all over the place in terms of its timeline. But it's an animated movie that is essentially capturing the childhood of a kid growing up in Houston, Texas at the height of the space race. Um, so Houston, of course, was like the central command of NASA where they were doing all the Apollo missions. And you had a lot of people who worked for NASA living and raising their families in the Houston area. And we kind of follow like a hapdash mosaic life of this one kid. The movie opens with this kid and uh, as an adult being narrated by Zach, uh, Jack Black, and he, uh, it, it kind of has like a little bit of like the Sandlot feel to it in that respect. And you're meeting this kid who's like grown up in this time, clearly a bit of like not a direct, I think, replication of uh, Richard Linklater's life. Like, for example, Linklater didn't have five siblings. So there's, it's not like a biographical film in any sense. And of course, like it, the movie starts with like, um, I think Linklater has said that like a real fantasy he had as a kid, which is that you know, he grew up wishing he had been an astronaut and what it would have been like if he had gone to the moon. Uh, Apollo 10 and a half is a reference, of course, to the Apollo 11 mission. But the movie begins with uh, Zachary Levi and Glenn Powell basically approaching this kid and being like, we accidentally made the lunar module too small. We need a kid instead of a smaller person to pilot this to the moon and they choose him because he's good at kickball and you're watching it and you're like okay i get what this movie is this is this kid like at one point the the kid is even just like i was a total liar and you're like yeah (laughs) of course you were um but what's funny about the movie is it opens with that right it's like oh this is a movie about a kid who becomes an astronaut but of course that's it's not being literal it's being fun he's 10 and a half years old and it's right before apollo 11 we uh, get it that's cute but then Say first boy. I was going to say it's first boy, not first man. First the boy. prequel <laughs> there you to go. first man. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But then for the next hour of the film, it has nothing whatsoever to do with that plot point. And this movie breaks one of the most important rules of storytelling. And I almost applaud it. Like your story always starts with a promise, right? Your screenplay always begins with, you make a promise to the audience. The first chapter, the prologue, whatever it is, tells you what you're in for. So you can't just like break that promise and just be like, oh, actually, no, that's not what this movie is. We're going to spend an hour where Jack Black is narrating this kid's random life, like all these things. And for some weird reason, this movie totally gets away with it because I found myself not caring at all about him being an astronaut at one point i was just like like when it gets back to that i was like oh we don't have to do that rich like we we, we could just we're good like we don't we don't have to have, we, we don't have to like follow through on that whole thing just keep showing me this kid's life it's entertaining just to like walk through what it was like to grow up during the space age in, in this time and when you were like a white privileged kid and just did not understand the world and kind of trying to figure out what's going on and 
I thought like all of that stuff, like going back and forth in time and just going through all these childhood memories and the randomness of narration, the randomness of your memories and how they're stitched together. It's this wandering, meandering piece of film, easy to criticize. Uh, I found myself really warmed up to it and finding a lot of comfort in it, even though I'm not from Texas or have any connection to what that life was like. But like, I think that that version of America of Americana is basically mythical, but I can't deny that I found a lot of it kind of comforting. And, and also, you know, it was honest about certain things. It wasn't like a total like whitewash of history or anything, but it also doesn't go very far. Uh, that's my quick review of the movie. I, I think as a, as a Netflix film, easy to watch uh, right now. It's very accessible. And I think it's a total, total blast of a uh, blast of the past. Uh, what do you think? Will? I like it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it quite reaches the same heights as some of the link later, link later films that I love, but Agreed. certainly as a streaming only watch, it is a very agreeable, very sweet and uh, in its own little weird way, a kind of touching film as well. Uh, but I think what fascinates me more so than the story structure of the film is how it uses animation. Uh, as you mentioned with uh, Waking Life and with um, Scanner Darkly, I mean, like I said, I haven't seen uh, Waking Life, but from what I can tell, that's a film that is very like philosophical and it's using sort of like the logic of dreams yeah. and like one's like perception of the blend between reality and their dreams to like this animation style is kind of making a fluidity with things that are kind of hard to conceptualize and visualize. And likewise with, um, scanner darkly, it's a sort of dystopian future story, but it's also a tale about drug addiction and identity. And it's kind of using that animation style to capture the paranoia and the isolation and the loss of control in a really unique and, uh, I think ultimately pretty compelling way. It seems you disagree, but that's fine. Um, but with this film, it's not really using that for any sort of like, um, philosophical or like, uh, horror or terror or like, uh, like grander things so much as something that's very insular and making it about the idea of nostalgia and one's personal reflection. And like you said, one's sense of like kind of making things both grander and smaller than they actually were at the time by using animation to capture this sort of nostalgic look at this time where it's like not exactly true to life, but it's not exactly false at the same time. Like the things that they're pointing out historically are broadly true, but his reflection of the time period, it's, you know, it, he's a storyteller. He's a narrative or a narrator here. And so we're engaged and we're liking it. But the animation gives us the freedom to be like, this isn't beholden to truth. Like, this isn't like actually like uh, exactly how this played out. This is how he envisions it, whether he wants to embellish it or whether it's like slightly off or whether it's, um, you know, a little bit smaller, grander than it actually was it. The animation kind of frees him to make it whatever he wants it to be and also allows for some of the more sci-fi and fantastical things to not feel completely out of place as they might have been in a traditional live action version of the story. And I think that's 
really what kind of surprised me and won me over about the film more than anything that you're referring to more specifically about the approach to the narrative. But as far as that is concerned, I think that's just the magic of Richard Linklater is that he can kind of do these things that are like, well, yeah, it's not like what, uh, what's his name? Robert McGee or whatever the, the like, classic storytelling approach. It's not like a hero's journey. Robert thing. McKee. McKee. Sorry. It's not, it, he might have a field day with his complaints about how this, film approach his story but like i think you know, john Trudy is like, probably either john Trudy or michael hay would probably be the screenwriters that would be most offended sure. by sure yeah uh but yeah, even I they mean, say you, that you, all these rules are meant to be yeah. broken sorry i, I sure <laughs> it's okay but, like, but, <laughs> what i mean to say is that i think link later is so agreeable as a filmmaker more often than not and so warm and and inviting that like even when he doesn't follow the rules or goes against convention it's kind of hard to dislike what he's doing because it's so affable and so winsome but also like it doesn't feel like it's mo- it's like meandering or like waste your time like there's a greater point to it but yeah. you kind of you're willing to indulge it anyhow because link later just makes very winsome films in his own specific uh, agreeable sort of way and that, and that's part of link later's style is to break the rules it's not it's not like we don't expect this from him you know like last flag flying and what, where'd you go, Bernadette? Were pretty formulaic by comparison, but like everybody wants them. The structure of that movie is basically like there's basically no like plot arc to it. There's not really much of like characters learning anything. There's no all is lost moment. Like the structure of it is just like these guys are just starting out college. Let's see what happens. The structure of boyhood is just like filling in over 10, 12 years and that they didn't really have like a really good plan. They just kind of winged it. Like he constantly is getting away with stuff like this in his movies, the before movies. I mean, you know, having the the actors write the dialogue and not really approaching it. Like he's just that kind of filmmaker where he tends to prioritize the humanity of his scripts over the the logic and the rules and it tends to work out really well for him because i just think he's just a very affable endearing human being who just has his finger on the pulse of what it's like to be a person in the modern age uh, he's just very good at telling those kinds of stories to so the animation i i think that what what's, i'm a little conflicted because on the one hand i think like how else could you tell the story I think that the animation speaks so well to the nostalgia. It, it like fits the character so well and like going back and forth and how everything feels like this summer haze is like attached to it the way that a memory tends to be. And like it's even sort of like spoken of in a meta commentary kind of way through the narration. But also like this is a technique that is kind of similar to rotoscoping where some of the film, uh, a lot of it I imagine was shot in live action, but they uh, they kind of like animate over it is the technique, right? And that, that's something that, you know, rotoscoping has been around for yeah. as long as I mean, animation has been around. And it's something mm-hmm. that like, it almost makes it feel at times like watercolors almost, but with like really good edges so that it's not like what you're seeing looks like it's impossible or that it couldn't happen, but it does sort of have this fantastical edge, which does fit the whole angle of like the kid imagining himself as an astronaut and bemoaning the fact that his dad is like a pencil pusher and not somebody more important as he perceives it at NASA, but him coming to terms with the importance of the moment and how everybody came and like worked together without putting too fine of a point on it. I have to say though, I, my personal theory about this movie is that 
And I don't think Linklater knew what he had until he finished the movie. And I imagine he went into this being like, well, you know, he probably first envisioned it as live action, but then was like, well, I think like to really pull this off, especially like kid in space, like we're going to have to animate it because how else do you do that? They they just didn't have the budget, I imagine. But then after they finished the movie, and this was a pandemic movie, they made it during COVID. I got to imagine Linklater looked at this or maybe somebody, people looked at this and were like, if we had made this in live action, like if we had put this out and put like real work into it as a live action feature, this is like a movie that could have been like nominated for like best picture or something. It kind of has that feel to it. Like I'm not knocking it down or hyping it or anything. I'm just saying that like, it does seem like a big event movie that you could market for award season, um, in a similar way to boyhood. My, my little pet theory. I don't know. I could be totally way off though. Um, well, I don't know about that, but I mean, to what you're saying, I, I mean, I don't know exactly how they approach the the film, but I mean, obviously it is trying to mirror the rotoscope style that they use for Waking Life and um, with Scare Darkly, though it does seem like they use obviously more like CG or like digital technology. I, I'm assuming that you're right, though, yeah. they use the like they, they actually film the stuff uh, and then they just kind of animated over it. Uh, and I, I did wonder if that was a choice, uh, because of COVID or if it was just something that Linklater always wanted to do. Cause obviously he has a precedent for it and like, um, you know, it's, it's something that he really loves. And I think, like I said, like, I feel like the nostalgia stuff was probably always inherent to how he wanted to envision this film and how he wanted it to be perceived. But yeah, I mean, I guess for me. The one thing that holds it back narratively that I feel like might have been uh, a crutch for it not being well received, whether it was animation or live action, is that it is very talky, not like in the way his movies are normally talky, where it's like people are having conversations, but it's a lot of Jack Black explaining things for long periods of time. And I feel like that's I, I get why it's done in that way. But that is a lot of the movie. <laughs> it's a lot of narration. It's Jack yeah. Black, yeah. I, and, and it's I weird because, like, like I'm yeah. glad though. At the same time, it's not half and half. Where it's just like stretches where he doesn't talk, and the stretches where he does. I'm at least I committed to it because I don't know. It, at least they didn't try to force in like a narrative arc to try to like weave all this stuff together. It's just it's just somebody telling a story, and it's fully that. Which is fine, yeah. But it just feels like. What I felt was most impactful about the film was, I guess, ultimately the ending of it. And I think the ending isn't impactful unless we have all that stuff with him explaining, like getting us to know the characters, getting us to know the family, getting us to appreciate the the sort of metaphor of it being like a parallel between him approaching adulthood kind of, you know, in his own way, like even though being a man is something that everyone, you know, or like coming into adulthood is something everyone experiences. It can feel kind of isolating and feel like you're going into untrained territory. And like this idea of like the space launch happening in his backyard kind of adds this very intriguing personal metaphor. And I feel like the end where it's able to communicate that without over explaining it and without characters kind of explaining everything that's happening is what I found more endearing. And I wish the movie had trusted itself, I guess, to have more moments where it wasn't just explaining the time and the period and the characters. And like, this is how things were different. This is how things cost this instead of this and all this. Yeah, I, just do, I do think like, it, it needed moments. Like it needed scenes where the narration shut up for a second and just let Stan right. talk to his mom about something or like ask her a question and have it needed those moments of poignancy that like, let's right. take a break from this just for a minute, just to like kind of sit in this. So yeah, it doesn't really have mm-hmm. that. And I think that's to me is what 
prevents us from from being more than just like a good to pretty good film. Like I think it would have been very good to great if it had trust itself more to just. And I mean, I love Jack Black. Like it's nothing against his narration. I think he does a fine job. But I think it's just it's it's over reliance on narration. I think becomes one of its main problems. I think I think what saves it is I I think Jack Black is really good at narrating. Maybe it's just something I really like about the cadence of his voice, but just the way that he's talking about it, it's not ho-hum. It's not ho-hum about it. It's not doldrum. It, it feels like he's really putting his heart into it. Like you're really feeling like it's the real sure. person. It's, and I think that speaks yeah. to Jack Black as a really good voice actor. The Kung Fu Panda mm-hmm. movies have proven that time and again. I think that like he's just able to say things in an interesting way, you know, like with a little bit of a country accent and just kind of being like, we didn't know that this was a thing, but you know, I guess that probably wasn't safe. We were just a a car accident away from a catastrophe, you know, like you hear it and you believe it with this guy. And so I, I think it does kind of save the movie. Um, all that said, I want to, I want to mention this too, because I, you know, it's definitely a Netflix movie that is, definitely like there are two approaches to this right you're either going to watch it as somebody who grew up in this time and be like oh i remember that and kind of watch the nostalgia or you're going to be somebody who's just like oh that's kind of interesting i didn't know that you know and i think what works about the movie is it it rides that line pretty well it has the member berries it has a little bit of like remember the 60s but at the same time you can enjoy this as somebody who doesn't remember the 60s who was just kind of like oh that's kind of interesting oh cool you know like i I, mm-hmm. that's what life was like, you know, in Houston, like when NASA was like right down the road, that's a cool little detail, yeah. but it's interspersed with all these other like childhood things from the sixties that are very unique to the sixties that other people can pick up on. And those, uh, specifically, or the things that are so specific to this time period and things that clearly come from Linklater's past, not like you said, fully being autobiographical, but things that clearly like he thinks about or things that like he's imparting from his life into this narrative, I think makes it feel more alive and more vibrant. I just think that the fact that the movie relies on that for such a large chunk of the film, uh, away from developing more of the characters, developing more of the family life, developing more of this main character, I think that's what prevents it from being a more enriching experience. Ultimately, I think the like world building, such as it is, is fine and good, but I also feel like there could have been. You could have used that time to make something a little bit more uh, subdued, I guess, a little bit more willing to be quiet and patient. And I think that's generally where I feel Linklater is at his best. And I feel like this movie had a lot of moments like that, but it could have had some more if he allowed himself to do so. Yeah, there, there was a moment in this when I was thinking of Ready Player One. Because it, you just have this whole diatribe where he's just like listing off all this pop culture, just like in a list just to sort of be like, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And it's like a mix of like things you have heard. He does that. And then he's like, okay, but then here were the deep cuts. Here were the TV shows, you know, here were the things like we would watch and it was about this. And like, I looked up some of it and I was like, oh, that's a real thing. <laughs> like, I had no idea there was a show that was about that. You know, th- there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, not, not knocking the film or anything, but yeah, it, it does kind of indulge for sure. And some of Linklater's bona fides, like, you know, the stuff he nerded out when, about when he was a kid. Um, yeah, I just think this is a, this is just a cute little Saturday morning cartoon animated trip to the 1969 Houston days. I don't know. Like that, not much else to say. I mean, it's just, I mean, yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, I think, and this is going to maybe sound like an insult, but it's actually a very sincere and high compliment. I'm ready. I feel like this is a movie that is made only for Richard Linklater. (laughs) 
And I think that's probably the best thing about uh, it. Cause it's not really like for kids per se. No, not like, no. I mean, kids can watch it. It's not mature or anything. Oh, for sure. There's like one little like, like image of like uh, somebody's arm getting messed up. That's about it. Well, there's that. Yeah. I mean, there's also like, uh, you know, scenes that show or reference pornography Barely. And like little things like that. It's a, it's a PG-13 film, basically. Like there's stuff in here that is not really meant for kids, but it's in an animation style. So I feel like teenagers and maybe young adults are going to be like, oh, I don't know if it's really for me because they, they just assume it's for kids. And it's a little bit too intense and too, like, like I said, like nostalgic for young children. So it's like I feel like it's made primarily for Richard Linklater. <laughs> and I think that's very inspiring and endearing. That's the stuff I want Netflix to do. I want there you go. Netflix to fund <laughs> filmmakers just making movies for them that like other film studios would not be willing to do. My only disappointment as far as Netflix is concerned is not only the fact that they just dumped it on their service with a little fanfare, but didn't give it more of a theatrical release. Right. I feel like some of the scenes, especially in space, would like... I forget if we said Linklater, it premiered at South by. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, Link later, not a man that's particularly known for his visuals per se, uh, but there are some scenes, especially in space, that I think are some of the best visuals that he's ever produced as a filmmaker. Yeah, and even like the archive footage. I mean, how many times have we seen archive footage of the Apollo mission and the John F. Kennedy speech in 1961, 1960? But like the way they do with this animation, it it adds like an interesting little bit of a unique touch to it, a unique flair Mm -hmm. that I was kind of gripped by. So yeah, yeah. lots of like this film movie. And I feel like, I mean, I, I, I cracked a joke about it earlier, but I really do think like Linklater probably saw First Man and like this clicked for him. Like I imagine this was an idea he's had like hatched in his brain for a while. Yeah, I bet. But, like, but there's like a lot of stuff that feels like it's taken from First Man. Not that it's like stolen or anything, but like stuff that's like, I feel like he had like the the broad idea for this movie for a long time. And then he saw First Man and was like, oh, it's time. I got it. I got it, it was a smart it. move to do it. Do over the pandemic, you know, to like during this time when, you know, we, you know, we were in isolation and everything, you know, to kind of just like take a step back and remember the past and kind of like relish in your childhood. And it's a, it's a good project to do. I think I, I could, I could see why he leaned toward it. Um, but yeah, that's Paul 10 and a half, a space age childhood. Uh, it's now available to watch on Netflix. It was produced by Netflix animation and it's just 98 minutes long. Let's play the Rotten Tomatoes game. And uh, Will Ash, we have 94 reviews counted for Apollo 10 and a half. I imagine most of these are from South by Southwest. Uh, but of course, we'll see more trickling in as this thing has been out for a couple days as we record this. What do you think the Rotten Tomatoes score is at this point? Uh, 79%. Wow. That's a bit lower than it actually. It's 91%. Oh, really? Okay. Cool. Yeah. Critics are liking I feel it. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was afraid that some critics were like, oh, it's too slight. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Another thing. I think that is a, yeah, that's a smart prediction to make I, I would not be surprised if this goes down a bit we do not have an audience score um zero audience score ratings uh but I yeah mean, like you said it was just kind of dumped on netflix was even in their top 10 last i checked for the weekend so i mean i'll, I'll have to check that myself that, i haven't i haven't seen the top 10 lately yeah. but uh i think I mean, the rental mm-hmm. a movie we reviewed in 2020 was in the top 10 i was like oh yeah that movie i mean i i found it uh pretty interesting that like when i was checking the top 10 for the bubble like a film that i'm sure they wanted to be number one was uh number three behind like the blind side or something like a 12 year old movie at this point i'm, so, I'm looking up the top 10 right now and uh okay. yeah you're right so bridgerton is number one uh okay, this well, is this yeah. is the top 10 in the u.s 
uh, Bridgerton, and then The Blind Side, like you said. Yeah. Shrek Forever After, the final sure. chapter. Uh, soon to be a season on Indian Ogre Tilt's Ogre. Not, not going to happen, but <laughs> uh, I think we might discuss it at some point. Uh, the Bubble um, is number four. Is It Cake, yeah. Heartland, Get Organized with the Home Edit. I don't even know what that is. Inventing Anna, which has been killing it. I mean, it's still in the top ten. That's, that's wild. Okay. Coco Melon, Kids Show, and then Good Girls. So... Sure. Yeah, not even in the top ten. Well, Coco Melon does that like just permanently have a spot in the top ten of Netflix. I cannot tell you actually. That's um, like I thought the thing, rental right? was in the top ten. I guess it's not. I thought I saw it on the top ten. Maybe it was on the trending. But yeah, isn't uh, inventing Anna supposed to be really bad? I've heard. I've seen a lot of people yeah. like make fun of it and meme it. Um, there sure. were like some other quotes from the show, but that's yeah. TikTok for you. Uh, but I guess we can do Letterboxd. We do have a letterbox rating. Okay. We have 7,000 watches on Letterboxd. Uh, what do you think the average rating is out of five? Um, 3.4? 4.9. Just kidding. Wow. wow. I was going <laughs> to say. 3.6. That's higher than... Yeah. Was it? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a 3.10 and a half. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, you were close. 3.6. That, that is very much... Okay. This is such a three and a half star movie. Yeah. Definition of it. All right. Yeah, I mean, it's like, like I said, it's like between three and three and a half. It's like very fine, very lovely. I like what it's doing formally. Uh, I just kind of wish it didn't talk so much. Uh, but so I, I kind of like that. Talk so much. Yeah. Oh! Yeah. There you go. <laughs> but I mean, not a complaint I commonly have about Linklater films. I, I love right. how much they talk and how talky they are. But he's good. This one, I kind of wanted him to. I wanted Linklater to do a little more showing, a little less uh, telling this time. But that's maybe just me. Well, here's me telling you what's coming up on the show next week. We have Sonic the Hedgehog 2 from Paramount, which is going to be hitting which wide release this weekend. have seen. I saw it on Saturday, and uh, my review for it is on Cinemaholics.com. If you want to check you... out my... Uh, it's a video review, and you can read the review as well. Like it? It's okay. Maybe? It's like, yeah, I mean, the first one was okay. It's kind of, it's just like the first one, but it's, it's a little bit better than the first one because it's more like the games in the sense that like they actually go to kind of some cooler places. Like they kind of go to like places around the world and it's a little bit more of an adventure, but Got it's it. also just, mm-hmm. it's like a mashup of every blockbuster movie. It's like very indicative of like the movies of the 20 teens. Like it has something, a little bit of something from like all of those movies from the last decade. Mm-hmm. So I well, do not see you like it much. Okay. So well, I, mean, I thought the first one, the first one's okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, the reason I didn't see it Saturday as well is because uh, it was two hours and change. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I, the, the time, the time they had the screening would have conflicted with when my work schedule was about to start. So Not I opted to see an earlier showing of RRR, a three-hour film, uh, instead, which actually got me to work right on time. So what can you say? <laughs> um. We will also probably, I assume we're going to be talking about Ambulance, new Universal friend film directed by Michael I mean, Bay. It's been a while since I, he put out a movie that wasn't on Netflix, huh? I'm more interested in Ambulance at this point than Sonic the Hedgehog 2. I'm sure you're in the exact opposite camp. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I haven't seen it. I've seen Ambulance in a day or two. And well, Jake Gyllenhaal, yeah. Yaya Abdul-Mateen, the second Isaac Gonzalez, and that's a cast. I mean, you uh, were very much uh, against 
Six Underground, his previous yes, film. Yes, one of the worst films, think, Pizza Film, in the last few years. I know you said something hyperbolic like that, and uh, <laughs> I I feel like it was fine. Uh, yeah, you, you, you're allowed I, to I, say things. I, I admire your passion against the film. Um and uh i don't know this one looks kind of fun though uh, yeah i i, I want to see it i haven't seen the trailer but it's called ambulance i like i like ambulances uh there's also well you see john uh <laughs> the words uh or the abbreviation la is in the word ambulance and so in the trailer um, you see the i can't keep ambulance. up with all this marketing it's uh it's a little you bit see too the, much the title um, ambulance but then the letters la stand out and you're like oh if you want to stick to streaming this coming weekend, though, all the old knives is going to be hitting Amazon Prime Video. Uh, it'll also be in um, oh. limited theaters too. It looks like all the old knives. Yeah, yeah. In this economy, well, I mean, look at this cast. We, we have some old <laughs> oh, knives oh. in this cast, sharp as ever. We have Chris Pine, Tandy Newton, sure. Lawrence Fishburne, Jonathan Price. It's mm-hmm. it's definitely a good cast here. Uh, but yeah, it looks like a pretty, pretty well. like dry yeah. film, I guess. Sure. From okay. the poster, I haven't seen the trailer. Okay. Who knows? I have, I don't know what the, this is. An Amazon film? Amazon, it is. Yeah, the Amazon Studios made it. And then last, we have a Netflix film. If you want to check out Netflix this weekend, we have uh, Metal Lords, a teen comedy written by DB Weiss and directed by oh, Peter Sullivan. Is that like Deathgasm Junior or whatever? That's the that's the word on the street. I think the biggest name in it. That's that I, what the kids are saying. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what they're talking about. Uh, the kid from Knives Out is in it, Jaden Martell, um, and then also uh, Joe Manganiello is in it as well. And then uh, I just I think it, it, it's one of those like who's who of like probably I assume kids are showing up on like Disney Channel shows. And uh, I think Brett Gelman is in it too. Actually, people recognize him. Um, but yeah, that's I those like your him, options. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely uh, going to see one or two of those and discuss them on this year podcast with you. So or we could pull which, a classic cinema hall move, talk about none of them and talk about some other random movie we didn't even know was coming out. <laughs> sure. As I mean, I'd love to talk about to do. R, R, R if you are willing to see it. Yeah, you sound like a pirate. R, R, R. <laughs> All right, that'll do it for our show this week. Uh, don't forget to connect with us on the social media apps if you want to talk to us directly or email us, cinemahawkspodcast at gmail.com. Check out our Patreon if you want to support us and uh, help keep our lifestyles in check. Humble us, please. And uh, we'll be back next week from the Internet California. I'm John Agroni. And from the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Lashton. See you next time.